This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for March 7th, 2018. In this episode, Apple plans some changes to macOS Server. We'll discuss what those changes are and their potential impact. Plus, in this week's news, a security company recently claimed it can break into any iPhone. A story about how Find My Mac was still finding a Mac its owner had sold three years previously. And Apple has posted a warning about phishing emails seemingly coming from its online stores. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. Do you remember about two years ago where there was a case where the FBI wanted Apple to unlock a phone? Yeah, you're talking about the San Bernardino attack. I, I, I remember that very well. Um, I I just recently moved to uh, the Bay Area, but I'm actually from uh, San Bernardino County. So um, it was kind of in, in my own backyard where this took took place. There, there was a big kerfuffle because the FBI wanted Apple to unlock the phone and a lot of loud-voiced politicians talked about it as well. But Apple said, we can't. We simply can't. It's just not possible. And and this brought into the mainstream the idea of how well protected something like an iPhone is and how dangerous it would be to write a backdoor into the software. A backdoor is something developers sometimes put in their code that gives them a secret way to get access to an app or a device over a network. It may require a special password that only the developers know. But the problem is that once you create a backdoor, eventually that secret word will leak and other people will be able to use it to get into the device. Of course, there was a lot of uh, conversation around that about whether Apple should have a backdoor um, that that they've put into their own software. And Apple's argument was, well, no, we, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't backdoor our own software because that makes it insecure for everybody. And there's no reason to do that for everybody. And Apple really pushed hard against the FBI and said, you know what, if you had come to us and, you know, early and we could have told you, oh, well, here, here's a couple of ways that you can probably get information that was used on that iPhone. Um, here, here's how, uh, for example, you could use um, the, the shooters, uh, the deceased shooters fingerprint to unlock the device within a certain time period after the device had been uh, had been used and and some other things like that. Here's you know, here's what you could have done to get into their iCloud account potentially. So it's one of those catch 22s, you know, and, and, and Apple's kind of darned if they do provide a way for a backdoor and they're darned if they don't, because um, you're going to upset a lot of people either way. Um, but Apple has kind of been sticking to its its intent to protect users' privacy by default, and and they you know Apple really feels like there are other solutions out there. Now, what the FBI supposedly did was they went to um, this company based in Israel called Celebrite and asked them, "Hey, unlock this device for me." So Celebrite is is this company that uh, you know works with law enforcement agencies around the world and supposedly they can, you know, can get into devices that other organizations can't. And they have some proprietary techniques that they're using. They're, they're probably using exploits that are uh, what we would call zero day exploits. They're not some, uh, something that's known to the manufacturer and being patched. So 
Celebrite just announced this past week that they can get into any phone, including the new iPhone 10, and in, which means that they can also get into iOS 11 devices. And they claim, according to this uh, Forbes report, they claim that they can get into even the latest version of iOS 11 that's been released to the public, which is um, 11.2.6. So they can get into any version of any version of iOS on any iPhone is what they claim. And of course, what this means is that there are exploits and vulnerabilities that eventually someone else might discover. It seems that they have most likely not communicated information about these vulnerabilities to Apple. But as long as they don't, they won't get patched because they don't want them patched. But what will happen if someone else discovers these vulnerabilities and doesn't disclose them and we all know that our phones are eventually susceptible to being jimmied open by anyone who has the right tools. I kind of wonder, based on the timing of this, if this has anything to do with the iBoot framework that, uh, you know, the source code that was supposedly leaked to the public just just weeks ago. You know, does that have anything to do with how, the timing of their announcement? Oh, yeah, look, we can get into any phone. Well, they didn't actually make an announcement, but some people noticed this in a marketing document that they were distributing. They didn't come out with a press release. Uh, well, another thing that's interesting to me about this is that they are not giving out software to you know people who pay for for this unlocking service. They're they're saying you have to send the device to us, and then we will help you get the data off of it. So it's it's something that they feel is so proprietary that they don't want to share this with anybody they want to do it in their own lab so that nobody else knows their secret way of getting into iPhones right because if someone else figured it out then there would be a bidding war and the price of the service would go down yeah or apple would you know would patch the vulnerability that they're using and then they wouldn't be able to offer the service at all right so they probably spend a lot of time fuzzing these devices trying to find vulnerabilities. We explained what fuzzing was in, in the last episode. It's just basically a way of throwing a whole bunch of possibilities at a device or an app to see what breaks. And then that breakage, that vulnerability might give you access to a device, to an app, to a database, etc. So in other news, there was a very interesting article on Medium by Brendan Mulligan, who's an engineer with Google. And his article is entitled, How I Sold an Old Mac and Unknowingly Had Access to Its Location for Over Three Years. And he explains that he sold an old Mac on Craigslist, and he he did all the necessary tasks that you do when you're selling or giving away a Mac. He erased things, he deleted his accounts and all that. But it showed up in his Find My Device um, list, which is either Find My Mac or Find My iPad or Find My iPhone. And he noticed it three years after the fact, and he was wondering how this happened. Yeah, he, he actually said that he erased the the hard drive. He erased, you know, Mac OS off of the machine. And he only realized this, you know, three years later. He, he, he said, you know what I didn't do? I didn't sign out of iCloud or find my Mac before I erased that device. And, and he believes that that's why he is still able to locate that device through find my Mac. This is not a bug, actually. It's a feature. Because let's assume that someone steals your Mac and they erase the hard drive, but you hadn't turned Find My Mac off. The whole point of Find My Mac is to be able to find it after that. The problem is that the other person never signed into iCloud in these three years. And if he had tried to do this, he would have had a dialogue saying that he couldn't sign in. 
I had this happen years ago in the early days of this technology when I sold an iPhone 4 or 4S to someone and I thought I'd erased it completely, but they came back the next day and said, oh, hey, I can't sign in. It keeps showing your Apple ID to sign in. And then I realized, ah, oh, of course, I didn't do the what is now the erase all content and settings setting on an, on an iPhone. So while it is a feature because it's designed to help you find a Mac, it's also a bit surprising that someone had this Mac and never signed into an iCloud account. It's pretty rare to imagine people using a Mac or an iOS device without using iCloud at all. Well, there are definitely some privacy and security implications here in both directions for the seller and for the buyer of, of a used Mac. For the buyer, they could potentially have their device completely wiped by the previous owner at any point in time if they didn't sign out of Find My Mac. And that's kind of kind of surprising. Just imagine if you bought a used Mac from somebody, maybe even wiped it yourself and reinstalled Mac OS, and then somebody wipes your Mac one day. That's crazy. It's crazy to even think that that could happen, but it could if they didn't sign out of a Find My Mac. And there's also some interesting things from the from the other perspective when this person who wrote this this article did work with that buyer and tried to disconnect Find My Mac. They also noted that the buyer was able to see the seller's full name in the dialog box that says enabling Find My Mac will disable it for Brendan Mulligan, who was, who was the person who sold sold the Mac and wrote the article. Um, so there, there's an interesting photo of that in, in the original piece. But uh, yeah, so security, privacy concerns, it's, it's kind of crazy. But if you do buy a Mac, it sounds uh, for, from a third party, a used Mac, what you definitely want to do is enable Find My Mac for yourself on your own iCloud account, because that will disconnect anybody else who's previously used Find My Mac with that device. In other news, Apple published a document this week about phishing emails that claim to be from the App Store or the iTunes Store. Now, we've talked about phishing several times. This is when you get an email that looks legitimate, and the link takes you to a web page that looks like a real web page from Apple or Amazon or eBay or PayPal, and you just blindly type in your password and someone intercepts it. This is a very dangerous technique. It, you can give up access to your iTunes account, to your bank account, to your Amazon account, etc., Apple finally published a document about this, explaining what this means for those people who don't listen to our podcast, who don't know what phishing is. They talk about certain things that an email from Apple will never ask you to provide. And, and these should be obvious to most people, but if you get an email that claims to be from Apple, they'll never ask you for your social security number, your mother's maiden name your full credit card number, or the credit card CCV code. That's the three or four digits on the back. Again, it seems obvious to us, but it may not necessarily be obvious to everybody. Now, what's the likelihood that the average user who you know gets these phishing emails and falls for them is going to come across this Apple article? <laughs> it's probably not very likely, unfortunately. Well, see, that that's the thing. It's not very likely. Every once in a while on my website, when I get another one of these emails, I, I publish an article just as a reminder, so people know what they look like. And they're often from Apple, but they're often from other places as well. One thing that they do say at the bottom of the article is they give you an email address to which you can forward any emails you get. So it's reportphishing at apple.com. Now, this is useful. And if you're a security professional, you'd probably already have thought of this. Or, uh, you know, I don't know if that address is particularly new. 
you know that when you do this, Apple is going to react relatively quickly. What they generally do is a lot of these phishing websites are set up on very, very small WordPress blogs. Someone will hack into a server and put a file in a folder that's about 12 levels down inside a WordPress plugin. And if Apple gets copies of these emails, they'll know what server they're on. They'll be able to contact the owner of that server and say, hey, your server's been hacked, you know, delete these files. So that helps everyone. So if you do come across one of these emails, uh, forward it to Apple. I'll have a link in the show notes to Apple's document entitled Identify Legitimate Emails from the App Store or iTunes Store. One other note on this, if you ever do get an email that claims to be from any company, whatever company that might be, and, and it claims that you need to update account information or something similar to that, the best thing that you can do is to not click on any links in that email. And as we talked about before, don't even hover over the links. Just delete the email. Go to the website, you know, for, preferably from a bookmark if you've previously bookmarked that site, and and log into your account directly from that site. Don't ever click on a link and follow that link because that link might not really go to the actual site that you think it's going to. Well, here's an interesting example of an email I got today. I will put a screenshot of this in the show notes. Yesterday, I was doing some cleaning on Dropbox. I've been working on a project for a client and I've been putting my files in Dropbox and there's lots of files. These are screencasts. So inside each screencast, there's a whole bunch of files. And Dropbox sent me an email today saying, hi, Kirk, you just deleted 3,028 files from your Dropbox account. If you want them back, you can still restore them until the 31st of March. These are the files you deleted. It shows one of them, and it has a link to see deleted files. Now, I know I deleted files. I was a little bit shocked there was 3,028, but inside the screencast files, there was tons of little files that are put together to make up the bigger file. Now, if you're not sure that you've deleted a lot of files, it could be an accident and you look at it and you're going to think, oh my God, I've deleted my files. I need to click the link and go back. So this is actually a legitimate email with a link to a website, but that's going to make you wonder or that should make you wonder and make you question whether it's legitimate. The, the trick is you hover your mouse cursor over whatever the link is and a little pop-up comes up and here it's clearly www.dropbox.com. But if you see something like www.dropbox.happynewyear.com, then that's bogus. The real domain has to be the one right before that .com, .net, .org, or whatever it is at the end. Yeah, and, and my recommendation would be if you get an email like that, that that's scary and that has to do with an account that you actually have or seems to, then my recommendation would be to, in that case, go to dropbox.com directly and sign into your account there and then see what you can find out. If that really was a legitimate email, then there should be something that you'll encounter when you log into that, uh, into your account. Well, naturally I did that, right? There's nothing when I go to Dropbox that talks about that. It's only an email. There, there's no alert. There's no little icon with a tag saying we've got a message for you or anything at all. Now to me, that, that, that's, that's a failing of Dropbox system then. Yeah. Dropbox can talk to you in many ways. One way is through the application icon that's in the menu bar. And there's a little notification panel, but I don't have any notifications. That's where I should see something. There should be a, a badge on the, the menu bar icon. You can also go to the website. There should be something there. So yeah, I agree. This is a, a bit of a failing on Dropbox's part. Yeah. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about macOS Server and how it's going to change and whether it will affect you. Sometimes an offer comes along that you just can't ignore or resist. 
And here's one from Intego right now. For a limited time and for the first time ever, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 60% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download your free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code Intego Podcast at checkout to save. 60%. That's Intego Podcast to save 60% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. This is a limited time offer that may never be repeated, so you must act soon. Save 60% on Mac Premium Bundle X9 or Mac Washing Machine Secure X9 or Mac Internet Security X9 using the promo code Intego Podcast at checkout. Intego devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today and save 60%. Josh, do you run a server? I do. I run a Mac OS server. You do? Wonderful. Do you run it on an old Mac, a new Mac? How do you do this? There's an organization that, that I've worked for that, that has Mac OS servers, and so I, so I do some support for them from time to time. I used to run Mac OS server on a Mac mini that I have connected more or less to my TV. I changed when High Sierra came out, and we'll get to that in a minute, why I changed. First, let's explain what macOS Server is. When you have a Mac, whether it's a MacBook Pro or an iMac or a Mac Mini or a Mac Pro, you're running a Unix operating system, which is extremely powerful, and the Mac part that you see is just the graphical user interface. Under the hood, you've got access to all sorts of features. It can be a web server, it can be an email server, you know, it could run a business, it could control a country, it's so powerful. But the thing is that as a user, you don't see this. You don't see the interface for this. If you know the commands to, to activate and configure all these services, you'd be able to do this. Mac OS Server is an additional app that you buy from the Mac App Store for $20, or if you have a developer account, you can get it for free. And what this does is it provides an app-like interface to a number of services that you can run on the Mac. A service is something that a server can do, for want of a better explanation. For instance, a mail server, that's a service. A web server is a service, a calendar server, etc. I've been using this for a while. I have a Mac Mini that serves a Plex media library. Plex is a media server, so that's another kind of server. And I've been using my Mac Mini as a file server to store some files. I've been using it for time machine backups. I've tried using it for content caching, but that doesn't work very well for me. What's your experience with macOS Server? Some of the things that I've used include um, the Apple caching service. And basically what, what that does is um, it's sort of similar to their classic um, software update server service. <laughs> yeah, server and service. Yeah, it's a little bit confusing, but these are all called services. Yeah. So um, th there's, uh, there's software update, which basically just caches you know, obviously Mac OS updates. Um, and then there's the Apple caching service, which caches several other things too. It can even cache, um, iCloud data. That's, uh, that users of your local network, um, have recently accessed, you know, and it caches other things like even your iOS app updates and things like that. And it does that for the purpose of 
making sure that anyone who's on your local network doesn't have to go all the way to Apple servers to download that. They can download it right from your own network because it has was previously downloaded. It saves bandwidth and it saves time. Sure. And then there's DNS, um, which, uh, as, as we've talked about before, is DNS is the service that makes it possible for you to be able to get to, say, apple.com without knowing the IP address. And there's so there's many companies have an internal DNS server so that even if it's something that's not on the public Internet, let's say that I have uh, an internal server in my company that I just call intranet. Well, if I go to, you know, intranet dot the name of my company dot com, then uh, then I can get to that server but only if I've set that up in, in DNS. And no one would be able to get to it from outside the network as well. Right, right. That, that would be something you'd have to configure on your public DNS and then you configure something in your firewall and all that kind of thing. Okay, you're getting too complicated now, Josh. You're going a little bit too far there. So Apple has made an announcement about macOS Server that they're going to deprecate a large number of services. Don't you like that word deprecate? They always use that as, as, a, as a synonym for we're getting rid of and you're not going to be happy, Right. Yeah, and and this is kind of interesting because, you know, macOS Server has has been something that's been around for for a long time, really as as long as um, as long as OS ten has been around. There's been server versions and or an app at least that you could download from the Mac App Store to do server functionality on your Mac. Early on, it was a separate installation, and then they rolled it into a standalone app, which is a few hundred megabytes. It's not really huge compared to the size of the operating system. Apple, even now on their website, says that macOS server is perfect for a small studio business or school, and it's so easy to use, you don't need your own IT department. It is easier to use than using the command line, but you still need to understand a lot of advanced techniques to get everything to work the way you want. So what they're getting rid of are the following services, calendar, contacts, DHCP, and that's an addressing thing that lets your computers get a local address before they connect to the internet. DNS, you mentioned before, mail, messages. You can set up an internal sort of iChat messages server inside a network. NetInstall, which is a way of allowing different Macs to install a predetermined operating system configuration. A VPN service. We talked about VPNs, virtual private networks, a few episodes ago. Websites, as I mentioned, it's a full web server. You could run a public web server and a wiki service that they have, which is basically for writing and sharing documentation. They say they're getting, well, they say they're deprecating all these services. Now, they'll still be there if you know how to control them with the command line. And I think a lot of people who are running macOS server are unlikely to want to update because if they really depend on these services, then updating means that they won't have the same kind of control. And this, of course, is a security risk, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. You know, you always want to be running the latest version of your software, especially if you're running a server that has public services or if your network, uh, you know, is available to the public. Like, like for example, if you run a small business and you have public Wi-Fi that you, you know, you have people come in and you want them to be able to access their email while they're in your waiting room or something like that. Well, there's a couple of things there. You probably want to have an IT guy help you to segment your network a little bit so that they can't get to your server anyway. But the other thing that you want to make sure that you're doing is if any devices that you have on that same network, you want to make sure that they're fully up to date and especially your servers. 
because if they're running services like this, you know, there are vulnerabilities that that are discovered in these services all the time. And so you want to make sure you've got the latest OS and the latest version of Mac OS server. So if server gets discontinued and you're running an old version of, of server, potentially you're going to have vulnerabilities on your network. You might as well just not lock the doors in your offices. <laughs> pretty much the same thing. So one thing that Apple says about the new version, which they say is going to be released sometime in spring 2018, is that it will focus more on management of computers, devices, and storage on your network. Now, that's interesting because Apple has a tool called Apple Configurator, which you can use when, let's say you've got 500 iPhones in your business, and this way you can install the same settings and apps and, and configure all the devices the same way so you have a company-wide security policy. So I wonder if the change here is to roll that into what they're going to call macOS server, or if they're making server into something that's more family-friendly. For a long time, people have questioned why Apple doesn't make an iTunes server. You know, if you've got multiple people in a family using iTunes, you don't want to duplicate the same music all over the place. And you end up with these really complicated solutions to be able to share music and play music and sync devices. Of course, Apple doesn't want you to sync anymore. They want you to use the cloud. Anyone who's ever tried to share a photos or an iPhoto library with a family member knows that it's disastrous. So it would be interesting to me if they made something that's more for the home user slash small business that doesn't have these fancy network services. Maybe the server will be able to control what gets updated on all the devices in your home or your business. It talks about storage, which would obviously be an extension of the time machine server feature that they have. And it's that's still continuing in the next version of macOS server. So it'll be interesting to see which direction they go in. One other thing to, to mention here, we, we were talking about, you know, you want to be careful about, about upgrading. As much as possible, you do want to be on the latest version. Um, the challenge that you may run into if you use one of these deprecated services is that, you know, when the next version of macOS comes out, you know, that server app is probably not going to get updated to run on that uh, on the latest version of macOS. If that server app gets updated to the latest version, you may actually lose functionality or at least lose the ability to uh, to manage and control those features within the you know within the server app. So it's something you have to be very careful about. Um, you know, anytime that you upgrade the the underlying OS on a server, you've got to be cautious about it. But if you use one of those deprecated services, what you probably want to do at this point is start looking into alternatives. If Apple's not going to be releasing new updates, uh, you don't want to get left behind. You don't want to have security vulnerabilities. Yeah, and, and there's cloud services you can use for a lot of these things as well. Right. Things like DNS you can do in the cloud, contacts and calendars, maybe not DHCP, but that's something you set up in a router. And if you know how to configure your router, you can manage that. So you do really need an IT guy when you get to this level. Yeah, that's true. So I'll link in the show notes to an article on the Intego Mac security blog talking about these changes to macOS server. And I'll also link to another article I wrote called How to Turn on Server Services in macOS. I said earlier that I used to use server for the services that I need, but I no longer need to. The three services that I really use are file sharing, which has always been part of OS X. You don't need a server to turn that on. Time machine backups. Now, that was part of server only until High Sierra, where they rolled that in. So you can take any Mac on your network, and if you've got enough storage, you can use that as a target for time machine backups for all your Macs. They'll backup either over Ethernet or Wi-Fi, depending on how they're connected to your network. I find that really practical to back up my MacBook Pro, so I never have to plug in a drive 
and remember to back it up. It all happens automatically. And the third one that you mentioned is content caching. As you said, this can cache iCloud documents, like photos, for instance. Um, it can also cache um, software updates, um, both for Mac and iOS. It's never really worked for me. It stored gigabytes and gigabytes of data, but I've never seen any of my updates come any faster. Yeah, I, I was going to say one one thing that would be useful for, uh, especially a, a small network, maybe your home network or a small business network, if um, if you have uh, a a data cap, if if there's a certain uh, number of gigabytes or you know that you're supposed to stay under in a month. That's somewhere where caching server could potentially help you. Yes, imagine you've got 10 Macs in your small business, and it's 5 gigabytes to download and install or for the latest version of Mac OS. It's better to download it once instead of 10 times. The same for iOS updates, iOS apps. The problem with them, and the reason why it probably doesn't work for me, is that each type of iOS device downloads a different version of an app. There is no longer a canonical version as there was, for instance, when you downloaded apps to iTunes, and that iTunes would transfer only the files that that device needed. So now if I download an app for my iPhone, it won't be exactly the same set of files as the same app for my iPad. So the caching only works if you have exactly the same device, not just iPhone versus iPad, but the same model of iPhone and the same model of iPad. Hmm, that's interesting. And this isn't the case on the Mac, of course, because apps are all the same for the Mac as they are for, you know, for one Mac as another, but I've still never seen any of this work. In any case, Mac OS Server used to be useful for people with small businesses or home networks, you know, people like us who have two or three Macs and six iOS devices, and, and it could even be a few for your family. But all this is changing in the future, and I'm looking forward to seeing whether Apple is coming out with a new version of Server that will be more useful for families, or if they're going in another direction, which is more strictly for businesses and schools to create multiple user accounts and install things on devices. Well, we'll keep our eyes open for that. And in the meantime, Josh, stay secure. Stay secure. Remember, you can save 60% on Intego software by using the code INTEGOPODCAST at checkout. Hurry, the 60% savings offer won't last long. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Links to topics and information Kirk and Josh mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where you'll find details on the full line of award-winning Intego security and utility software, intego.com. Intego.com.